What can you get away with and when should you spend money? Spend or save? Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 83 of No Putts Given. I'm here with Chris, Tony, and Harry. Guys, let's jump right into it. $1.6 billion. How about that TaylorMade sale? What do we think? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of dollars. That's a big number. They were asking two, right? Those were the rumors, right? The unsubstantiated, you know, throw it out there on the market, I think, somewhat to gauge interest, somewhat to set people's expectations. And I don't think anybody seriously thought it was a $2 billion type thing, but I think there's probably a lot of people thought it wasn't 1.6 either. So, yeah, I mean, there was what reported 1.6, 1.7. We got our number from a Korean financial newspaper. So, think that's actual terms not disclosed, but you know, 1.6, 1.7, you can be confident that we're in the right ballpark there. So yeah. It's only a hundred million dollar difference. 1.6, 1.7. Yeah. Only a only hundred million. Know, each decimal is only a uh, hundred million. So whatever. To use the, the financially correct term, it's a shit ton more than KPS paid for it. So yeah, that's what the sign in the yard yeah. said. A shit ton more metric than we bought. I it believe because well, yeah, probably a metric shit ton. <laughs> what was the profit yeah. that they bought it for? Do we even know? Well, yeah, four, what, they were 400? like four twenty five. I mean, and and a lot of that was not you know cash necessarily. So I think when we talked before is maybe a little less than half that in actual cash outlay. So call it two hundred million and change. I mean, reasonable estimates probably put it at kind of a four x profit type situation. So. You know, mm-hmm. probably yep. returned okay. a little more than four x on the investment in how many years? You could buy you could buy a lot of Dogecoin Three, with that, you know. Oh, I mean, boy. so easy, Elon. Somebody, <laughs> yep. Somebody at KPS is getting a, you know, getting the employee of the month parking spot. Probably they did a good job. And you, and you think like they? It's small detail. I mean, really small in the grand schemes of the golf world. But they actually had already sold off the Ashworth brand, so. They actually had less to sell and still mm. got way, way more. Yeah. High fives at KPS, I'm sure. As much what as we... boardroom guys high five. <laughs> what about the trajectory of where this means TaylorMade might be going in terms of who bought it and what we think it means for TaylorMade's future? Good things? Bad things? Uh, No, thanks. I mean... We've seen some stuff where, you know, some some nasty comments about how the Koreans are going to ruin everything and this and that. And, you know, doesn't seem fair. Yeah. I mean, some of it overtly racist, racist, some of it just stupid. Um, Some of it both, really. I mean, some people got both of them. And I mean, it's like you look at it and go, man, wait till wait till these guys find out that the controlling interest in in. Akushnet, the Titleist parent company, is also held by a Korean firm. Right, Fila. So, yeah. And like, I mean, this is going to be... Yeah. If you look at the tailor-made trajectory as a whole, right? This is a company that was when KPS bought them. I don't want to say at rock bottom, but you know, Adidas didn't unload it because it was making, a, a again, a metric shit ton of money for their brand, right? There was... It was rock bottom adjacent, I mean, at least. It was... Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it may not have been there, but it could kind of see, you know, like the... It, it was in sight. And so, you know, from where they were to where they are at that trajectory, I mean, I, I don't think mm-hmm. as a as a smart investor, as somebody who takes over that company, you come in and look at, at where things are going and go, yeah, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to overhaul this. No, you're going to you're going to look at, at what is being done and try and continue that. And I, I'll right. 
you know, go back to the Titleist example, right? When when Fila obtained the controlling interest in the Akushina brand, they didn't come in here and reinvent anything. They're like, yeah, look at this. We've got this golf company that returns dependable profits, um, steady growth. That seems like a good thing from an investment standpoint. So you know, the good business decision is is to kind of just keep doing what they're doing because it's it's working exceptionally well. The consumer probably isn't going to notice a whole lot on the end, right? I mean, if you ask people, mm-hmm. look over the last four years, how much of a difference did KPS make in your personal life? You know, nothing, right? So it's a lot of stuff that, that's behind the scenes. It's organizational, the thing kind of under the hood of the car, I guess, so to speak. And and yeah, some of those things might change. There may be some strategies, implementation type ideas, maybe how they go about some marketing things or tour spend or, you know, worldwide staff. How do they, um, you know, work within distribution models? But the two comments that I saw come up that were, you know, both, you know, you know, potentially, like you said, overtly racist and or just ignorant. Like, oh, you know, TaylorMade's going to go back to the six month, you know, new driver every six minutes. Six whatever. Shut up. You know, number one, shut up. <laughs> TaylorMade, yes. Were they at that at one point? Yeah, absolutely. But that isn't the case anymore. It just, you know, it just flat out isn't true. And and the fact that you know people want to associate any type of behavior with a certain type of you know geography. And say that that's going to dictate, you know, how a company is going to run or, or what their personal experience was with that is, you know, it's connecting dots that maybe don't exist. Hmm. If you're a consumer and we had not told you this and came back in two, three years, said, hey, what have you noticed really, you know, really has changed, you know, with TaylorMade in the last two years? You're not going to see much. Yeah, you'll see the one thing that is intriguing, right, is the the fact that the the Korean market is the second biggest golf market on the planet right now. And so, mm-hmm. you know, is there a way to, as what becomes, I guess you could say, is a Korean brand now by some measure, is there a way to leverage that home team advantage to to grow your your market share in in again that that second largest market? Well, I see but, I see them making a little bit more of a different product, like um, a lot of these brands do in um the asian market where they make different clubs i can see like a they already have asian market product product and i don't again yeah but not that much i reckon that i reckon it's going to be 50 50 well i don't think you need that much if you look at the trends in the asian market is that they're they're sort of moving away from those traditional asian market designs and so you are seeing callaways and and titleists and um you know, tailor-made too. You're seeing American brands have more of a presence in those markets with what we would consider to be traditionally American-style designs. It's so now, bizarre. You're still going to see some yeah. of that light stuff, but yeah. for the most part, even those markets are shifting a little bit towards you know our standard, if you will. And that's probably its own topic. What I've noticed is a lot of the Asian market, if it's not expensive, they don't buy it. So whether you see the same product, say it's 500 bucks here for a driver, if it's not $1,500 or 1500 whatever it is over there, then they're not going to go buy it. Yeah, like I said, this is probably its own topic, um, looking at the trends and, and things as we've established. You know, we have My Golf Spy Japan and, you know, and working with that team and, and discussing a lot of these issues with them, um, you know, you've seen a couple things over the last five, six, seven years. One to Tony's point, you've seen typical or kind of traditionally JDM, you know, Japanese domestic market. We often lump, you know, uh, Korea in there as well. 
Um, they've tried to do things to become more marketable in the Western world, try to take advantage of the demand that's in North America. You know, and on the other hand, you've seen some American companies try to get more product and awareness in Asian markets where they know, to Harry's point, people will pay a premium for a variety of reasons, a lot of which are cultural. And so you can look at specific examples with different clubs. Like you can look at, I'll use Mizuno as an example, like MP20. You look at just some of the design features. There, there's elements to the Mizuno irons that look more traditionally Japanese than arguably the MP18 series before it. Now, on the other hand, you're seeing, take a company like Mayura, who you know, is, is really trying to you know, establish itself and really arguably is, is one of the only ones that has now uh, in, in North America and what they've tried to do like with their new 401 iron. And a couple of those to try to take, you know, Japanese roots and make them more marketable in the U.S. And so we've seen a lot of this push pull. Um, like I said, it's there is probably a longer topic and, and more of a discussion to it and a lot of examples to it. But again, Harry, back to your point, new company that's coming out that we're going to talk more about here in about a month. Proto Concept, their driver, mm -hmm. you know, driver head itself is about a thousand bucks without a shaft. And and why is Crazy. that? Crazy. Yeah, but will it sell? I can guarantee you. I mean, we got it. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I see it right now because it came into the studio. Yeah. And it looks like an everyday driver. Till we cut it open. Until you cut it open and we'll see what's inside. <laughs> this actually brings me to the next topic that I wanted to dive into today. You say $1,000 for a driver head without a shaft. That seems extravagant to me. However, it, if, if it's the best on the market, it might warrant the money. So considering the vast number of things on the golf market that consumers can choose from, I want to know what you guys think about when you can get away with something cheap that you don't have to spend a lot of money on and when you should really take your time Pick out what's right for you and invest your money. What can you get away with and when should you spend money? Spend or save? Chris, why don't you start? What do you have oh, on something ooh. that you can get away with? So if I'm a value buyer, um, first place I'm going to look really is uh, probably irons. If I look mm. at just, you know, just look at golf equipment itself, obviously we know Golf equipment depreciates, you know, pretty darn rapidly, even with, you know, 18 and 24 month product cycles. Um, you know, the depreciation probably isn't as rapid as it was maybe five or six years ago. But when you look at the lifespan, you know, look at like the half life of a driver or for a set of irons, they're going to far outlast, um, you know, from a performance standpoint, you know, what you'd be, you know, kind of willing to spend on them up front. I mean, Daniel Berger is playing, what, 2011 set of, uh, you know, tailor-made CV irons, right? You see guys and gals that play, you know, very traditional-looking muscle-back cavity-back irons. You know, they're not going to wear out in two, three years. So if you find a set that you like or you're willing to look back a couple of years, you can get, you know, you can get a set of irons that was 1200 bucks, 1100 bucks for you know, maybe a third of that. So that's the first place that I'm going to go. If I want to save, there's a tremendous amount of life left in irons after two, three years, and you can probably knock off two thirds of the cost. So that's where I'm starting. I'm going with irons. Okay. So don't waste your money on a brand new set of irons right out of the gate as soon as they're released is what you're saying. I'm saying if you want to save some money, 
It's a good place to do it. All right, let's see. Harry, <laughs> where where would you save your money? What doesn't have to be expensive or top of the line in your opinion? Um, I would say a golf driver. A driver? What about a non-golf driver? I'm not sure why I threw that in there, but whatever. Um, yeah, I would say a driver. I mean, we've proven that a five-year-old driver just performs incredibly well. It all depends. If you have a wood wooden driver, then yeah, you might want to get a new driver. But if you don't have a wooden driver, I would say if you had a driver that is at least five years old, you're on the edge of potentially getting a new one. Devil's advocate here, though. Driver makes a significant impact on your game, right? So if you have a driver that is fit to you, that might be on the more expensive end, is it then worth splurging because it could make significant improvements to your game? I mean, yes, but answer me the question of how many people are actually fit for a driver. Everyone, 90% of golfers buy off the rack. I mean, if you if you have a five-year-old driver, you're not going to see, unless it's ridiculous, change. <laughs> a, a really bad five-year-old driver. Yeah, and you were poorly fit for it. Yeah, you're not going to see 20 yards of difference. You're not going to yeah. see that. Right, Brooke Henderson won on the LPGA Tour a couple weeks ago with um, all G400 series, Metalwoods Ping, right? So, which are now two generations old. You know, and those are, again, you have players playing at the absolute highest level that, you know, I think would, you know, would back that up. So. All right, Harry, save on the driver. Tony, where are you saving your money? What doesn't have to be the most top of the line? I mean, a putter for sure. I mean, you can go back. <laughs> I mean, how many decades, right, has the has the shape of the putters that sell remain largely unchanged? And you're seeing a lot of just straight milling. And there has been some evolution with, you know, even roll and, and various face inserts over the years. But but for the most part, the, the putter hasn't changed significantly. You can, you know, the, the Tommy Armour, like every year we have a, a putter, putter that performs well at a hundred bucks. Like Wilson, we've seen hundred dollar price uh, putters perform really well. Tommy Armour, hundred dollar putters that go on sale for what? Like 70 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And you get like a bag of free chips. There are, there are, and, and again, right. A lot of, a lot of, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, Harry brought up the shaft and, and so to, to speak to that, what I would say is, you know, if the farther away you are from the middle of the bell curve, the more you kind of, especially if you're on the fast and aggressive side, that's where you're going to have to probably spend some money to get the ideal fit with a putter. There's no speed component, right? There's, there's nobody that, that puts excessive load on their putter <laughs> shaft and, and, and has like this tremendous lag. I don't know. Well, who was the guy that, who was the guy that broke his? Well, I, th- I think he smacked it though. <laughs> and didn't he have to putt with the, the three wood, yeah. was it? Well, yeah. Well, if you break it, that's a whole other thing. I know, but like, I'm just I, kidding. I mean, Christ, I, I put dynamic loft on everything, but, but not a putter. <laughs> and so, and the other thing too is because every company who makes a putter makes about thirty of them a year, and golfers tend to be a, a little bit mental about their putters anyway, right? If it stops working, it's time to get rid of it, get a new one, and. You know, for for every Dave Wolf who, when a putter stops working, just tosses it in the garage, there are guys who just unload it, right? And so there is a the used market is is ripe with plenty of good putters, and obviously you need to be careful with counterfeit Scotty Camerons and things like that. But 
Yeah, I mean it's it's just an abundance of of putters out there that that don't cost a lot of money. So, yep. you know, I just I, I when I see a three hundred fifty dollar putter, in some cases I acknowledge that the technology story is really cool, or or there's some detail or or some craftsmanship that went into it that you can use to justify that price tag. But in terms of of performance, I mean. For a hundred bucks, you can find, or less, you can find something in any toe hang, mallet, blade, whatever. You're going to be able to find something that works pretty well for you without breaking the bank or, or even taking a chip out of the piggy. So, so speaking of putters, though, Tony, I, if I'm going to regrip it, I got two options here. I, if I'm going to regrip, do I go with El Chilito or El Chilito? Which one should I regrip with? <laughs> Yeah, we got to bring back the Chilito, aka the chili cheese burrito. I don't know. We talk about, you know, after Bob was here last week, we we talk about who we should have as a podcast guest. Let's uh, maybe let's let's try and get Mark King. We'll talk about the tailor made years, Adidas, and now Taco Bell, and and right his reticence to bring back the best damn menu item ever. Right. Right, and so this is so. Which one do I put on my putter? I got Again, I'm I'm looking at you over a video conference essentially, yeah. but that white to me is. That white pops. He's like, you can I see agree. it. That's high contrast. And I think I think we I need agree. to get that Chilito message out there. So maybe we'll have to do a giveaway for the green one and I'll uh, game the white one. I don't know. El Chilito. All right, Tony, saving on putters. Okay, Chris, let's go back to you. Where are you investing your money? What do you have to have that you, you can't skimp on? I am never going to skimp on things that make me comfortable on the course. I will pay through the nose for... Shoes, socks, boxers. I finally found my go-to boxers this year. It's been a journey. It's been a journey. Really? <laughs> if you play in inclement weather, rain gear, right? Things that keep you dry or comfortable. That's my primary answer. The other one we'll get to in a second, which is golf balls. Don't skimp on golf okay. balls, people. It's stupid. But things that keep you comfortable. You've stolen Tony's ideas. Literally every last one of them. Really? Yeah. Sorry. Kentwell. For me, like I will load up the good people at Kentwell. Um, they don't spawn. We've never done anything with them. I pay full price. They are the absolute best socks on the market for me. Um, they're not cheap. They're like 20, 20 bucks a pair or something like that. Um, but I will absolutely buy, you know, 10 pairs a year or something like that. And they're the best. I will not sacrifice my feet. All right, so Chris is spending his money on shoes and socks, but saving it when it comes to irons. And underwear. Underwear. Don't and forget. underwear. I feel like that's an across-the-board thing. That's not just golf, though. That's, huh? Well, what is true of golf is true of life. Thank you, Tony. Deep thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, where are you spending your money? Something that you, you got to have top of the line, can't get away with a cheap version of it. I would have said shoes... Uh, that Chris stole, um, Thank you. and then rangefinder. To be honest, ooh, ooh. I like a, I like a or rangefinder or a GPS. One of the two. We've got to a point now where walking out distances is not really a thing. And if you really want to dial in your game, you've got to know the numbers. So, and the cheap versions just don't do it as well. If you have a cheap rangefinder, you could be off by ten to twenty yards, depending on if you hit the correct target or not as well. And when you do hit the correct target, it could still be off by seven or eight yards. So that don't skimp on just purely. I think it's worth the money. 
It's a good answer. Tony, how about you? What can't you skimp on? You got to spend all the bucks that they ask of you. So I think everybody's been right so far. Like Harry mentioned rangefinders, and at first I was like, oh, it's, you know, that's more of a convenience, but I just got a new one, replaced a, a five-year-old Bushnell with a newer Bushnell, and even something is is the difference in target acquisition time is appreciable, and the fact Harry mentioned, like, it's very clear when when you don't have the target you're looking for, so that makes a big difference, but fundamentally, Chris is right. I don't care what you splurge on, right? I don't care if you go to TXG or, or Pete's Golf and you get the absolute premier fitting experience and they get you dialed in with the ultimate shaft and head combo and you you know you have to spend eleven hundred dollars to get there whatever but it is as good as it's ever going to be for you if your shoes suck (laughs) and you're uncomfortable on the golf course it's over a driver does not even matter like it's just it's misery and if your rain gear sucks and you get caught in rain you're miserable and all of the stuff you splurged on doesn't matter underwear my god like i i I don't understand people who buy cheap underwear and yeah i'm i'm as much an underwear snob as i am a golf ball snob i'll admit it i rarely if ever only with a coupon code do i spend less than 30 dollars on a pair of underwear but and you gotta as i said treat yourself one pair yeah yeah 30 bucks that's that's is yeah that's that's the reality you can get a five pack of Lulu for like 128 bucks, something like that, 125. And you just rotate them every week. You never have an excess or like. No, it's but you oh. buy in bulk, find coupon codes, save 25, 30% off that 30 to $40 price. But yeah, that's. You got to take care of yourself. I'm wearing paper from the sounds of it. <laughs> like compared to you guys, what? I put in the comments if you're willing to pay. 30 bucks for a pair of underwear. Done. One uh, pair. Yes. Now, I do I, I do, I do attest that golfer's ass does happen in the summer. So having the <laughs> correct amount, the, the correct boxes on, it does make a difference. My mind is blown. Well, you got more than you bargained for in this one, Miranda. I mean, if you have to walk, you know, the last nine holes, like you just got off a horse. Oh, you ain't going to yeah. play that well. <laughs> just going to waddle your way down the yeah, fairway. That's it just, right. Uh, it just... It, is it the uh, material? Is it the structure, the cut? Yes. It's yes. all of it. Yes. It's, you know, it's like anything else, right? All the pieces right. have to come together. I, I don't even know how to move into the next topic, so I'll just jump into it. Is the only transition that we're still talking about balls? Okay, so moving into <laughs> our next segment today, Chris, you are right. We're still talking about balls. Balls. Tony, yesterday Same. we put out a Q&A with Tony, golf ball Ask whatever you want um, of Tony about golf balls. And so I thought we'd let you answer some of them for our No Putts Given audience. But actually, I want to throw a question at you that you didn't put in the article. This one's coming from me. Um, It seems like cutting open balls and the studies we're doing in ball lab is starting to have an effect on the industry. And one of those effects is now cores of balls and mantles of balls are the same color. So we're having a more difficult time discerning whether the cores are centered or not. Is that something you've been seeing? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting you bring this up. So I was noticing, I guess it's still current generation Chrome soft, not the LS kind of see this, this black on gray, and we notice, right, the Shrixon is green on green. And with the, the tailor-made, the bulk of, uh, of what we're seeing with the mantle and the, and the core layers, or at least the mantle and, and where it meets the core with the, the initial couple layers and the outer layers, very difficult to discern the boundaries. And, 
you know, it's one of those things where if you see it in one ball, you think, eh, you know, maybe, but when you start to see it two, three, four balls where, you know, they're, they're almost blending layer colors, you start to wonder if it's, you know, there's something to it, if it isn't a reaction to, to not just us, but there are, you know, we're not the only ones cutting open golf balls. So there's, there's more and more awareness of, of what's inside the golf ball. And, you know, certainly when I saw the tailor-made ball, um, at least the majority of them, uh, I thought, hey, you know, may- maybe we're getting past the point of coincidence with this, with this. And then, you know, I had an exchange with one of my overseas ball contacts who mentioned explicitly that, you know, the the factories and, and ball, the ball business, if you will, the, is is very aware of, of kind of what's transpiring and, and how consumers are are being made more aware of what's on the inside and, and that stuff is the the literal inside is being brought to the outside now for the world to see and so there does appear to be a conscious effort to to obscure a little bit or make it make it harder to identify defects and you know it makes sense and you're sort of like ah you sons of bitches right it's funny too because it wouldn't it make it harder for them to do their own qc as well Hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of them have x-ray machines and, and there's some other stuff they do. So, you know, in terms of that, that visual inspection it potentially makes it a little bit harder. It's, it's harder to obscure, you know, Shrixon's a good example. Titleist, great example. The, and this is another piece of the conversation. The, these dual core designs, just because of the way the, the layers come together, even if they're, they're the same colors or pretty close to the same color, those boundaries are still pretty easily identifiable. So when you get into the outer layers, like Trixon's a great example, right, where the mantle and the cover are, are always yeah. almost exactly the same color so that when we cut one, people are like, well, that's not the right ball. That's a, that's <laughs> a two-piece. And you're like, no, it's, it's really not. It's just that's, that's how... You know, you're taking a really thin cover and putting it on a mantle that's the same color. So you're you're getting some of that for sure. The other thing we're starting to see, um, you know, Callaway's a great example. Maybe they'll come back. You you mentioned the, the latest generation of, of the MaxFly Tor X where um, four-piece balls, you're, you're seeing in some cases a move from what would be considered a dual-core design, right? Where you have two very obvious true center layers to to more of that dual mantle layer where you uh-huh. you have one big core and then then two thinner layers on it and that's you know that's what, what Callaway has done yep with some of its recent stuff um, and that that's a great way to to not necessarily center your cores perfectly but it's you know it's easier to center that big core than it is a smaller core for sure and the other piece of it is too it's you know just the way our eyes work and we perceive things it's much easier to to see a small core that's off center and go, oh my god, that looks terrible. When on percentage, right? If you had a big core that was off the by the same amount, you may not even notice it. Is that going to affect performance though? If the the core is bigger, does it change the flight or anything like that? I mean, it's every everything's like moving around, right? We're going to tweak the performance. Now, Titleist will tell you that they believe you get the best performance out of a out of a four piece ball using that that dual core design that they use. I'm sure if you ask Callaway, they'd say we get the performance we want. We get better performance out of our dual mantle design. So it, ultimately, you're, it's small tweaks and, and everybody's going to tell you that the way they do it is optimal. And so, you know, is what it is. But the reality is, right, if we were to look at it some total, what we could probably say for almost for certain is that it's harder to make a ball with a true dual core design a four-piece ball with a dual-core design, it's harder to make that ball as consistently as a lot of companies would like to over 
time, right? It's a it's just a more difficult process, which is probably fundamentally the reason why companies are going away from it. It's just harder to get it right over and over and over. Oh, that's for sure. Absolutely. Here's a question that you did answer in the article, but um, I think it's an interesting one. So it'd be interesting to get, you know, a little bit more of a take from you on it. Rich Riker asks, have we reached peak performance with golf balls? Is it now just about manufacturing cost savings and price points? What do you think there? That's an interesting question. So, yeah, um, I think we we obviously we're at the point of peak distance in terms of your absolute limit, right? The USGA, which is currently exploring rolling back the ball, is not going to sit around at a table and go, "Hey guys, you know, maybe we've been thinking about this all wrong. Let's <laughs> let's let's open this up and see how far we can take this." That that is not going to happen. So, in terms of the the absolute their their distance rules, that is not going to change. So there is as long as a golf ball is going to be. Now within that, you know, there is room. There's there's no regulation around say launch and spin and things like that. It, Not yet. So how how can you get to that distance, right? So you're going to see manufacturers as they have done for generations of balls now tweak their launch and spin profiles, right, to to try and, you know, optimize over a wider range things like that. You may see as patents move into public domain, you may see more five-layer balls for example. You may see things like that. I think the biggest <laughs> opportunity really is in the cover. Hmm. That's for a couple of reasons. One, as as much as we think of golf ball design as this advanced thing where everybody understands everything they're doing, the actual flight of the golf ball over over the duration of it is is not by any means fully understood. We're we're talking about just portions of, of a single rotation that have been fully mapped at this point using massive amounts of computer horsepower, and they're still you know, a long way away from understanding what happens over the full trajectory. So I think as that piece becomes more understood, you're going to see evolutions of dimple patterns, not necessarily for more distance again, because that's pretty much capped, but you're going to see things like and just kind of balls that are more stable through the air is how I would describe it. So they, they're not going to be impacted as much by headwinds and crosswinds and things like that. So that's an opportunity. And the last one, too, is is largely cost-driven. But we know that not every golfer wants to spend $40 on a golf ball. And so we're seeing, you know, we, Chris and I joke all the time, right, this idea of premium ionomer. Um, but there is a movement to, so to continue to advance that material to the point where you get performance similar to urethane out of a lower cost material. And so that that's kind of the last one is, is to get, is to, I guess, make a better, cheaper ball, if you will. That's pretty much what we're looking at in terms of, you know, anybody. Anybody could make a ball that goes longer right now. The USGA just doesn't allow it. And, you know, anybody can make a ball that spins more or less now, but there becomes a, a practical point, right? It's a fitting consideration where if you move away from where we are in the market now, you're just moving to these niche ends at the perimeter. And there's opportunity there, but only to a point. That's why we're seeing, right, Chromesoft XLS and, and Left Dash. And, you know, to an extent, I, th I think we're going to see a different TP5 model that moves into that space as well. TP5 double X. Triple X. Go all the way. Uh, it's... Filthy. All right. Anyway. <laughs> We're also taking some live questions via Facebook. So Tony, you haven't seen this one before. No. Fun. <sighs> Buddy, I'm so I'm gonna mispronounce your name and I'm sorry. Um I think it's Cleet de Wispler. If you say it fast, you can't tell. 
I know, but let me know if there's a better way to say it. I'll fix it. Or let me know. Let me know if I got it right, too. Um, But he wants to know, what's the most overhyped tour ball, in your opinion, and the most underrated one? I think that's that's a cool question. Um, Cletus. Most overhyped tour ball. I don't think it's Cletus. It's Cleet, I think. Oh, all right. Clet. Overhyped tour ball. This is going to sound, you know, it's it's the Bridgestone Tour BXS. It's the Tiger Ball, and it is overhyped because it is the Tiger Ball. But from a a fitting perspective, and you know, and, and I say this because it it runs neck and neck before E12, which is is doing really well for Bridgestone right now. The new E12 Contact before that ball was launched, the Tor BXS was neck and neck with Tor BRX as the number one seller in the Bridgestone lineup. And when you look at the properties of that ball, it just like it spins a lot off every club in the bag. For a lot of guys, it's going to spin too much off a wedge. It's going to spin too much off a driver. And that is an awesome golf ball for Tiger. They made that golf ball for Tiger, but it fits almost no one, right? Yeah. yeah. You're not Tiger. And so, you know, the spin off the driver is is going to be a penalty. The The curvature that comes with that is going to be a penalty off the tee. And so that's a case where a great golf ball for Tiger is probably not a great golf ball for, um, you know, the, the rest of the guys out there or the majority. All right. How about underrated? Yeah, I'm going to say left dash just because. Um, yeah. <laughs> if that's your answer, that's your answer. Yeah, I, mean, I don't I don't know what underrated is. I mean, that's a tough one, right? Because there are not a not a lot of, you know, I'd make a case, I guess, you know, to balance it out. I think that that Tor BX is a is a fantastic golf ball for a lot of guys. Bryson and Lexi Thompson don't move the needle the way that Tiger does. And so, you know, that ball doesn't get the kind of attention. But if you're going to go out and and take a guess on which one is going to fit the majority of golfers better. I, you know, of those two, I think the BX is, is probably the one that's the better fit. So I like that one and it's, it's not super niche. It tends to be a little bit on the low spinning side, but it, it's not a niche, total niche ball, like a, like a left dash is, or, you know, the Chrome soft X LS, for example. So I guess, yeah, I, I, I like, I'm going to go Bridgestone for both. I think actually. All right. P H X living asked. At what Phoenix living. Cap- we got this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's an abbreviation, isn't it? Well, I'm killing the Twitter handles. That's the worst part. Um, <laughs> Sorry, anyway, Cletus. PHX Livin wants to know at what handicap does it really matter if you're playing a top tier ball? Example, the Pro V1. Everyone. Yeah. So this is one I answer, right? And I start by saying, right, that I think golfers of every handicap level underestimate their ability to hit a good shot from time to time, right? And it's, it's really the difference between a, a tour pro and an average golfer isn't necessarily like, yeah, Dustin Johnson has massive head speed and that's a huge advantage. But for the most part, if you're going to quantify the, or put a label on the single biggest difference is it's consistency, right? A tour pro is going to hit that same shot over and over and over again. Higher handicap is going to have a much lower success rate. But I think that when you, when you do hit the ball the way you want to hit it. You want a golf ball that's going to give you the most out of it. And so I think even the highest handicapped golfers can benefit from from the performance of a tour ball. Now, I say that understanding that if you are losing four, six, eight balls mm-hmm. around, you maybe don't want to spend $40 on balls. And so... Well, that's, that's my thing right there is that, yeah, it's... You could be spending a lot of money on these balls and losing all of them but you can still 
get a really good torble for you know a cheap a cheaper price right buy buy kirkland's they're not yeah right. there a, you a go. kirkland you isn't get a, a lot more for that 30 dollars than you do one pair of underwear let me tell you a costco kirkland isn't a pro <laughs> v1 but it's it it does give you a bit of the urethane experience buy buy snell or vice in yeah. bulk you know get that price price under 30 dollars if you're if you're if you're losing balls, go to someplace like lostgolfballs.com and get quality used balls even. Take a shot there. Don't and get refurbished. Do not get yes, refurbished. Yes, used, not refurbished for sure. And at that point, you're looking at, you know, $13, $14 a dozen, which is is certainly less than you would spend buying a crappy two-piece ball, which is just not going to do what you want it to do on your best shots. I think part of what does a lot of damage to consumers on this is the term tour. You know, we use the term tour ball, and and so people build up this, you know, build up all these walls based around the single term, you know, tour. I I've used the example of okay, how refined of a palate do you need to have to go enjoy a super expensive steak? Like how how good do I need to be at steak eating and telling differences <laughs> to go have I a good fifty dollar <laughs> steak, eighty dollar steak? Am I am I a good enough eater? To appreciate it, I don't know, but like golfers have this idea: oh, it's a tour ball. My game needs to be in such and such a place to get the benefit from that ball or to experience. When the reality is, you know, if you can get it airborne and forward, you're good to go. Yeah, I mean, if you're if your taste buds work and you like meat, you deserve the good steak. And that's that's why balls like the Tour Response, the Taylor Made Tour Response, and the RX, and you know. The real the the first chrome soft right how regardless of how it was built, those are not tour urethane balls ultimately right they're nobody played plays very it. little if at all on tour nobody plays urethane covers some of the benefits typically lower cost on those but again I mean you you have options you don't if I say hey go buy you want to you'll get the most out of your game with a with a tour ball that that doesn't mean you have to go spend $49 on a box of Titleist or 47 on TaylorMade or and you know whatever the the Shrixons are going for now a little bit less still there are value options available and yes I I'm going to admit it I am the worst kind of ball snob right I'm going to I'm going to tell you, like, if money is no object, yes, go buy those balls that I just mentioned. But if you are losing a large number, and I'm <laughs> I'm right there with you some days, then, then yeah. like We've all been there. Look for decent urethane at a really good price. How many golf balls does an average golfer go through in a year? Like, how many dozen balls? What is 300 million golf balls that are lost in the U.S. alone every year? Say 25 million golfers? This was, I think, 300 was like a couple of years ago, too. That's only 12 balls per golfer, which seems, you know, obviously very low. That's like a week for me. <laughs> you know, like when we do a giveaway, and we give away a year's worth of balls. Let's even say it was 12 dozen. And on one hand, you're going to pay top tier. So let's say maximum amount you'd spend on 12 dozen balls would be $50, call it 600 bucks, right? And you're probably not going to spend that, but call it 600 bucks. Best case scenario, let's say you get them for around 30 bucks. Right, so now you got twelve dozen for thirty bucks, three hundred sixty bucks. You're talking a difference of two hundred to two hundred forty dollars, right? Between your best case, you know, absolute highest cost and absolute lowest cost, you're looking at two hundred forty dollars over a year. Or That's five rounds of golf, though, for some guys. Yeah, or eight yeah. pairs of underwear. I get it, but yeah. this idea that it's like, <laughs> you know, oh my gosh, these tour balls are so expensive. I mean. People waste way more than $240 on expensive coffee or whatever the case is. So it's not like you're spending 
thousands of dollars more to get a a top tier premium golf ball and it's like oh my gosh i am just saving so much money i can you know i can put an addition on my house because i'm i'm paying you know i'm gonna play these you know these balls yeah and i might lose one but there there is a mindset though right and i understand this so if you go out and you spend fifty dollars a dozen on a golf ball and your first round out with your brand new box of balls you lose half of them Man, you're you're gonna feel that pinch when when right. I would not spend two hundred and forties a session on my hair if it were brown the next day, or if it fell out afterwards, right? right? Well, so, it doesn't. like it, I mean, you you do get to there is a lifespan of a uh, Miranda's hair, but that's that short term mindset. I get it, but people spend fifty dollars on a t shirt. Think about what you're willing to spend on something you're pretty sure you're going to lose. And so, yeah, like I said, Snell and Vice, if you can, when you buy them in bulk, they're, they're sub $30 a dozen. Costco is, what, $15 a dozen uh, is what it averages out. And then if you get into, if you're willing to take a shot on, on used golf balls, again, used, not refurbished. You know, I, I was, I actually looked at this the other day as we were kind of, as I was answering these questions, I'm like, what do, what do they cost? Used Pro V1s. Two bucks a ball, buck 50 a ball, something like that. Under 15 a dozen. And, and if you think about your own experience, the guys who lose all those golf balls, right? How many of them do you lose while they're still in really, really good shape? Every so, single one. It's yeah. the first tee. You, you, you save, you save it for a tournament, your Pro V1 and boom. In the water or out of bounds, but that lasted long. Like I understand that the durability does matter, right? But there is, there is, as a guy who loses more balls than he would like, there is like it's a magical feeling when you have to take a ball out of play because it's beat to shit. You're like, yeah, I outlasted this golf ball. That's a win. So all right. Anyway, Alan Birch, I can say your name. Alan Birch wants to know what ball do you guys play and why, so everybody can answer here. Chris, what ball do you play? Uh, I play the Pro V1X Left Dash. That is Ooh. my go-to ball uh, as of right now, this moment in time. Although a close second is the Pro V1 currently. But the thing that I like about Left Dash is the following. Number one, um, so it's the it's the high launch, low spin. It's the only one that isn't linear. It doesn't uh, the, give me golfer's ass. Yes. It is a higher launch, low spin. The low spin makes this, for me an incredibly long ball off the tee hmm. and off the irons. And so that is helpful. I play with a number of guys that hit the ball further than I do. This, this allows me a way to close that gap even incrementally without for me sacrificing anything that I need around the greens. Um, if anything, being a little bit lower spin as well off irons it allows me to play a slightly softer shaft in my irons than I might otherwise so that it generates a little bit more spin. So I don't feel like I have to, you know, swing all out uh, on my iron shots. I feel like I can try to hit shots, etc. And then it still gives me enough spin, you know, wedges and around the green. I have no problem controlling it the way that I feel like I kind of want to around the greens and so it it is that kind of combination it kind of hits all those different segments of my game so i'm yeah i'm a left dash guy all right harry what about you what ball are you playing and why uh playing the pro v1 the regular one um because it's incredibly consistent what i would like it to be a little bit more softer around the greens uh, for my personal game, but apart from that, I I really really like it. If it had a softer 
cover, I can get a little bit more check around that green when I bump and run some into the into the greens. But apart from that, it's a phenom- phenomenal ball. You might want to work on your technique. I mean, if, if Chris and I can get a left <laughs> dash to check up around the green, I would think a Pro V1 shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> well, here's the thing with you guys. You're very steep with your uh, wedges, so you like to fat it and thin it. I'm, I'm more consistent. I'll show you. I'm going to send you some wedge pictures of me. I have a very nice consistent approach steep doesn't matter harry it's all spin loft it's that face to face to path face to attacker face to attacker relationship adding dynamic loft to it i'm gonna send you some videos i'm gonna hit some pitch shots for you today harry and cinnamon all right let's see it then it's kind of feisty i'm gonna blow blow your dinger mind <laughs> I am so this is early season, right? So, you know, I'm I'm like Chris. I've I've been a left dash guy for you know, this will be season three, or at least part of season three with left dash. Last year doesn't count. Um, for all the reason he like I like it's it's filthy long off a driver and I'm a high spin guy. So, you know, Titleist will tell you it's a niche ball. I think from a common sense perspective, that's probably accurate, right? You don't want to fit exclusively for driver performance, but I like the distance off the driver and I am a high spin guy. So I, I play it off my irons. I don't even have to soften up my shafts. I can keep playing what I, what I'm playing, what I'm like, I can get it to check up around the green, uh, even off little, you know, short 20, 30 yard shots, even less. Um, so that, that's been my go-to. Having said this, and this is going to probably shock a lot of people when these words come out of my mouth, but here goes. Uh-oh. I have been experimenting with the Callaway Chrome Soft XLS, and I can tell you that it is not short. It holds its own with left dash. Very similar performance. I might even bite a little bit more around the green. What? That's anecdotal. I'm going to have to play with it a little more and see where we are with that, but... Um, yeah, fuck me for saying it, but it's, it's a ball. I, it's a ball that I continue to be intrigued by. I would be more than happy to give it a fair, a fair test, uh, against the left ash, but, uh, nobody from Callaway reached out though, to take me up on that. You know, the one thing I have noticed the color, the cover does to tend to chew up just a little bit more. And so I, I have one that I've been playing for a while that I may have to trash, but that's a good feeling. So yeah, it's, um, I can't say it surprised me because we've we've seen the steady improvements in the Callaway quality control from, I'm going to be very clear about this, from the balls made in the Chicopee, Massachusetts plant. Some of the stuff that's coming in from overseas, I'm still a little, uh, little weary about, but in terms of that flagship product, the, the ChromeSoft, ChromeSoft XLS, what I'm seeing suggests improvement. You know, I don't, I don't think as we look at every last metrics, it, it's quite as tight as Titleist. But I, I'm, I'm willing to say I'm willing to append that with yet because I do see that steady improvement. And, yeah, I've been messing around this with this golf ball off and on for five rounds. And, yeah, I don't I don't hate it even a little. I haven't seen, right. you know, with every other Callaway tour ball I've seen with, you know, enough swings, I've started to see some stuff that that was kind of dicey that i didn't like and and so far i haven't found it yet i'll keep looking i'll be back to complain all right yeah, you let <laughs> yeah us know. you'll be back <laughs> keep us updated all right let's round it out with this one schlick d wants to know how do i determine the best golf ball for me i wish we had a golf ball selector tool yeah like i mean this is this is one of those ones right where there are are a lot of different philosophies 
conventional wisdom. It's, it's what Titleist will tell you. It's what Dean Snell will tell you. Start from the green and work your way back. And so like, hey, make sure it works. Make sure it, it works for you off a putter. And for some people that, I mean, mostly that just means feel. And I don't, I don't necessarily like that. I'm like, you know, let's, let's, let's maybe take feel out of the equation. But again, it's, it's got to do, Harry's a good example, right? The, the left dash doesn't do what he wants it to do around the green. And so Let's let's take that that one off the table, and we'll go from the wedges to the irons, and then once you're dialed in with that, again, Titleist wisdom, and I think a lot of others would agree, you you fit the ball to the irons, and then you fit the driver to the ball because you've got all of that adjustability. So the one thing I like to emphasize that that I found in my own experience, and this goes back years, where you know I just was hitting balls into a net on the launch monitor, see what the numbers were telling me. I think for a lot of golfers, it, it's extremely difficult to discern. You know what what the advantages are what what a ball is doing well and so what i found quickly looking at things a little differently is i could find out what a ball wasn't doing you know hey this and yeah. the great again back to harry right it doesn't do what i wanted around the green all right let's let's cross that one off the list and so maybe maybe starting at the green there are especially if you're including feeling it if you if you start with say five potential possibilities you can cross two of them off right there hey this this didn't do what i wanted it to do off off a wedge or off a putter now let's let's move to the irons and all right am i seeing anything in the flight is it is it too high is it too low is it not stopping the way i want it to off the irons all right well let's maybe cross one more off the list there and then you get to the driver and it's like hey which one is which one is 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 going longer and staying straight right what are are the launch and spin properties here and and which of these can i tune my driver to to achieve my objective with and so it's trial and error then there's your there's your short answer well that's what i did so when i when i did mine i did tailor-made tp5 the pro v1 and the strixen um z star xv and i really like the the strixen xv and I still like it. It's just when Tony did the consistency test on it, it just didn't perform as well as I wanted it to. If if it starts to improve just that little bit more, it's always going to be on the list because I really, really like that ball. But when I did all these, all the things that Tony just mentioned, it ended up with the Pro V because everything rounded out. Yes, you're going to give up something here and there, but for overall quality, Tylist for me, the Pro V one was was my game was my game ball. Tony answers a lot more questions than we touched on here. So we'll link that article for you uh, if you'd like to take a look at a couple of others. Uh, Last week, we had Bob Parsons on the show. So that was a don't miss episode. So if you want to take a look at that, check it out here. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. We out. 